You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 40th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. So as you can probably tell from the most recent episodes, April 1861 was a busy time, what with it being the start of the Warrendal. But we hope that with the way we've chosen to present things that you've still been able to um, get the feel for all that was happening pretty much all at the same time around the fall of Fort Sumter or shortly thereafter. And we actually have a timeline laid out for the podcast for the episodes of the events and happenings and topics and whatnot that we want to cover. And next up is yet another significant event that happened within this same short time span that is within a week or so, the fall of Sumter. And on our timeline, it's very simply labeled, Lee Resigns. On April 19, 1861, while on business in Alexandria, near his home at Arlington, Robert E. Lee learned that Virginia's secession convention had voted to take the state out of the Union. A few hours later, shortly after midnight, on the morning of April 20th, Lee resigned his commission in the United States Army after nearly 32 years of service. In a letter to his sister Anne, a Unionist, he stressed that his decision was more personal than political. Lee told her, quote, With all my devotion to the Union and the feeling of loyalty and duty of an American citizen, I have not been able to make up my mind to raise my hand against my relatives, my children, my home. I know you will blame me, but you must think of me as kindly as you can, and believe that I have endeavored to do what I thought right. End quote. Those words that Lee wrote to his sister have been our touchstone as we've worked on this particular show, since, to be honest, we've been looking forward to this episode with no small amount of trepidation. That's because Robert E. Lee is one of those figures whose legend is so persistent that it often confounds historical reality, especially in the popular imagination. Such is the enduring power of hero worship that still, nearly 150 years after the end of the Civil War, much of the Lee legend is still automatically accepted as fact. It should be pointed out that Lee, who died in 1870, himself contributed little toward constructing the legend. Most of it is instead due to a distorted version of Civil War history known as the Lost Cause, which originated in the post-war propaganda disseminated by thoroughly beaten but largely unrepentant ex-Confederates. 
The lost cause was and is an elaborate and intentional effort to rationalize secession and the war itself by falsifying history. And those who constructed this mythology and have perpetuated it placed Robert E. Lee's memory on a pedestal and set him up as the patron saint of the lost cause. Jubal early memorialized his late commander by saying, quote, Our beloved chief stands like some lofty column which rears its head among the highest in grandeur, simple, pure, and sublime. End quote. Lee's most prominent biographer, Douglas Southall Freeman, wrote that, quote, Lee was one of the small company of great men in whom there is no inconsistency to be explained, no enigma to be solved. What he seemed he was, a holy human gentleman, the essential elements of whose positive character were two and only two, simplicity and spirituality, end quote. We think this romanticizing and idealizing is unfortunate, since it means the reality of Robert E. Lee's story has been subsumed within the legend of the lost cause. Rich and I think this is regrettable because we happen to believe that the real story of Lee's life is even more fascinating and interesting than the myth. Robert Edward Lee was born on January 19, 1807. He was the fifth child of Anne Carter and Revolutionary War hero Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee. Robert grew up primarily in Alexandria, Virginia. An ever-present dark cloud hanging over Robert's early childhood was caused by his war hero father's crippling debts and Lighthorse Harry's subsequent flight from his creditors. After his insolvency and mounting debts led to his imprisonment in the Westmoreland County Jail in Montrose, Virginia, in 1813, Light Horse Harry went into self-imposed exile and spent almost the entire remainder of his life in the West Indies. Robert was barely six when his father left home, and so he would grow to manhood acutely aware of the shadow cast over the family name by the wreckage of Harry Lee's finances and reputation. Robert's mother, Anne Hill Carter Lee, raised her impoverished brood as best she could, taking them on extended visits to better-off relatives, especially the wealthy Carter clan. Without the stability of a permanent home, the shy, reserved Robert grew accustomed to moving about and being a house guest. As a boy, Robert attended a school maintained by the Carters exclusively for their offspring, and later on he went to Alexandria Academy. A teacher remembered Lee as studious and courteous. The man recalled, quote, His specialty was finishing up. He imparted a finish and a neatness as he proceeded to everything he undertook. End quote. While his father's absence undoubtedly influenced the formation of Lee's character in certain ways, it was Anne Lee's steadying guidance that nurtured in Robert many of the admirable virtues of his character. His mother's death in 1829 was a severe blow to the young man. Forty years later, he gazed into the room where she had died and sadly remembered her passing. He said, It seems now but yesterday. Powerful family connections ensured that Robert secured a place at the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. 
Lee entered West Point in 1825 and famously survived his four-year tenure there without accruing a single demerit. He attained the much-sought-after cadet rank of adjutant and graduated second in his class. In someone else, such success might have aroused the jealousy of fellow cadets, but a classmate of Roberts later said, quote, I doubt if he ever excited envy in any man. All his accomplishments and alluring virtues appeared natural to him, and he was free from the anxiety, distrust, and awkwardness that attend a sense of inferiority. End quote. Interestingly, despite his success at West Point, Lee would have been the last person to suggest he was born to be a soldier. His attendance at the academy was mainly due to the fact that it offered the fatherless young man a free education and a military career meant a secure future. In old age, Robert E. Lee actually regretted the decision to become a soldier, believing it to be the greatest mistake of his life. Nevertheless, Lee's stellar record at West Point allowed him to enter the Corps of Engineers, the branch of service that attracted the Army's brightest officers. And as an engineer officer, the assignments he was given appealed to Lee's sense of order and his innate creativity, but the duties themselves, while frequently challenging his resourcefulness, were often grueling and unglamorous. Lee's first assignment took him to Georgia, to Marshy Cockspur Island, just inside the mouth of the Savannah River, where he worked, often hip-deep in swamp water, to prepare the foundation for a new coastal fort. Two years later, he helped to complete another coastal strongpoint, this one for the defense of Chesapeake Bay at Fort Monroe, Virginia. In the summer of 1829, Lee began courting a 21-year-old debutante named Mary Ann Randolph Custis, a distant relative he had known since childhood. Her father, George Washington Park Custis, was the adopted son of George Washington. He was also the owner of Arlington, a palatial Virginia estate overlooking the nation's capital. Robert became a frequent visitor to Arlington during his furloughs from Coxpur Island. Mr. Custis fretted over the young lieutenant's interest in his daughter. He had nothing against Lee personally, but he had not given Mary a privileged upbringing only to have her experience hardship as the wife of an army officer. But both Mary and her mother presented a united front in support of the handsome and earnest young suitor, and so on June 30, 1831, Mary Custis became Mrs. R.E. Lee. Romantic love and companionate marriage were increasingly important to Victorian Americans, but for Southern men, a woman's name, wealth, and status were more important. Now, this isn't to say that wives could not be helpmates and confidants, lovers and friends, but especially in the elite Southern slaveholding society, they could also be social, political, and economic assets. And when Robert married Mary Custis in 1831, it was a match that ensured him wealth and property and restored the polish to the Lee family name, which had been tarnished by his father's humiliating failures. There's been debate over whether Robert and Mary's marriage was a happy one. Mary was allegedly not very attractive or engaging, which made for a dramatic contrast with her dashing and very handsome husband. Their marriage was marked by extended separations caused by his army assignments. 
And those postings, as well as Mary's poor health and repeated pregnancies, regularly kept them apart. And then the difficult trials brought on by the Civil War and Robert's decision to side with the Confederacy really did little to alter the basic dynamics of the Lee marriage. Happy or not, the Lee's marriage produced a passel of lively and attractive children, seven in all. There was George Washington Custis, born in 1832. Then there was Mary in 1835. William Henry Fitzhugh, known as Rooney, arrived in 1837, to be followed by Annie and Agnes in 1839 and 1841. Robert Jr. came along in 1843, and the last of the Lee children was Mildred, who was born in 1846. Robert was a devoted father, and his lengthy absences caused by his army service during the children's formative years seemed to genuinely grieve him. He was mortified when, after one such absence, he failed to recognize his youngest son. Despite Lee's frequent absences, his children idolized him. All three of his sons entered Confederate service during the Civil War. Custis and Rooney both became generals. None of Robert and Mary's daughters married because they could never find anyone who met, in their eyes, the standard of their father. Years after Lee's death, his daughter Mildred wrote, To me he seems a hero, and all other men small in comparison. Well, that's more than a bit sad, uh, but on a brighter note, I've always liked the fact that Lee would tell his children stories in exchange for having his feet tickled. And I've always thought it's kind of funny that Robert E. Lee enjoyed having his feet tickled. Are you ticklish, Tracy? <laughs> okay, moving right along. Mary had never enjoyed a robust constitution, and the stress of bearing seven children in 14 years eventually ruined her, her health. In 1835, Robert returned from a survey of the Ohio-Michigan border to find that Mary had contracted a severe pelvic infection. The illness gave Lee a scare, and to remain close to his wife, he spent several tours of duty at the engineering office in Washington, D.C., enjoying the benefits of a stable home life, but increasingly frustrated by the workings of government bureaucracy. Eventually, the frustrations won out, and Robert requested a transfer to St. Louis, Missouri. There along the Mississippi River, he spent two and a half years battling financial, legal, and engineering obstacles in a successful effort to prevent silt from blocking the St. Louis docks. For his efforts, Lee received a promotion to captain. But Robert E. Lee was actually stationed at New York Harbor in 1846 when America went to war with Mexico. And just a reminder that we used episodes 5, 6, and 7 of the podcast to cover the Mexican War. We did indeed. Um, but, so naturally, Lee, as a professional soldier, was rather desperate to participate in the war, but he had to wait several months before he received orders to report to Texas. By the time Lee arrived in Texas, however, the hostilities in northern Mexico were winding down. And after that phase of the war, the U.S. Army's General-in-Chief, Winfield Scott, thought the best hope for a decisive victory was a strike at the enemy capital, Mexico City. That would require a force be landed on Mexico's Gulf Coast, so Scott began to assemble an army for that task. And Lee, after conducting numerous but largely fruitless reconnaissances for Brigadier General John Wool in northern Mexico, 
received orders to report to Winfield Scott's headquarters to serve on the General-in-Chief's personal staff. That posting proved to be a fortunate assignment for Lee. Scott's army stormed ashore at Veracruz in March 1847 and began an epic campaign to capture Mexico City. The march on the enemy capital took five months and was accomplished with marginal resources. At a critical point in the campaign, Scott even decided to cut loose from his supply lines and continue the advance on the Mexican capital. On several occasions during the campaign, Lee provided invaluable service by locating routes around the enemy flanks that let the American forces outmaneuver their more numerous foes. Before the Battle of Contreras, for example, Lee several times scrambled for miles over the broken rocks and boulders of a forbidding lava field in order to deliver vital information to General Scott and then to lead American units to advantageous attack positions. Lee's grit and determination won Scott's admiration. The enemy had considered that same terrain impassable to military formations, but Lee demonstrated an uncanny eye for terrain and a surprising determination to overcome physical obstacles. At a victory celebration after Mexico City's fall, the General-in-Chief toasted Lee as the man, quote, without whose help we would not be here, end quote. Robert E. Lee emerged from the Mexican War with a brevet colonelcy and a reputation as a brilliant staff officer. Following the conclusion of the war, Lee returned to the familiar and routine duty of constructing coastal defenses, but in 1852 he received a plum assignment, superintendent of West Point. The ninth man to hold that position, Robert E. Lee oversaw the extension of the Academy's course of study from four years to five and encourage the study of strategy. It may seem odd to hear that Lee had to encourage the study of strategy at the United States Military Academy, but back in the olden days, West Point was primarily an engineering school, and while the cadets did go through endless hours of drill during their years there, they actually studied surprisingly little military theory. Exactly. But during Lee's tenure at West Point, he also improved cadet discipline by weeding out the lazy and incompetent. Perhaps the most famous cadet to get booted out during that time was first-classman James McNeil Whistler, who was never without a sketch pad, but whose careless academic work was crowned by a spectacular failure in a chemistry exam, in which, when asked to describe silicon, he began his answer by saying, "'Silicon is a gas.'" Whistler joked later on in life that, quote, had silicon been a gas, I would have been a major general, end quote. Well, Whistler instead settled for becoming a world-famous American artist, and to the end of his days, he admired the superintendent who had dismissed him from West Point. Lee left West Point in 1855 to accept a position as lieutenant colonel of the newly organized 2nd Cavalry Regiment, and for the next several years, he spent most of his active service in the wilds of central and western Texas. And just a footnote, but at this time, a fellow named Jefferson Davis was serving as Secretary of War in President Franklin Pierce's administration, and Davis was instrumental in the organization of the Army's two new cavalry regiments, as well as the selection of the officers for them. In fact, Davis, from Mississippi, would be accused of purposely assigning a disproportionate number of Southern officers to the regiments, 
ostensibly to groom them in preparation for a future conflict between North and South. Be that as it may, from isolated and dreary frontier outpost, Lee dealt with Indians, Mexican bandits, and the pain of separation from his family. A steady stream of letters flowed from his pen to Mary and the children. He wrote to his youngest child, Mildred, telling her, You will have to send me a kitten in your next letter. The Indians have none, as there are so many wolves prowling around that they frighten away all the mice. My rattlesnake, my only pet, is dead. He grew sick and would not eat his frogs, etc., and died one night. And yes, Lee really did have a pet rattlesnake in Texas. And later on, during the Civil War, while on campaign, he would have, of all things, a pet hen. Well, anyway... Um, In October 1857, Lee's father-in-law died, and Robert, then 50 years old, seems at that point to have had a bit of a midlife crisis. He wrote to his commanding officer, Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston, saying, I can see that I have at last to decide the question, which I have staved off for 20 years, whether I am to continue in the Army all my life or to leave it now. My preferences, which have clung to me from boyhood, impel me to adopt the former course, but yet I feel that a man's family has its claims too. End quote. Lee's second thoughts about a lifelong career in the peacetime military were not at all unusual. Many officers left the army, put off by service at bleak frontier outposts or by the slowness of promotion or enticed by the money that could be made in civilian engineering jobs. Lee eventually decided to stay on in the Army, but it took him 30 years of service to reach the permanent rank of colonel. In 1860, his annual income amounted to just over $4,000. During that same year, Ohio resident George McClellan, a much younger officer who had resigned from the Army to become a railroad executive, made over $10,000. But to get back to the death of Robert E. Lee's father-in-law in in October 1857, Lee ended up going back to Virginia, to Arlington, to serve as as executor of his father-in-law's estate. Unfortunately for all those involved, George Washington Park Custis had left a complicated, poorly written will, not to mention substantial debts and little cash. The vast Arlington estate betrayed years of neglect and poor management. Forced to ask the War Department for several leaves of absence in order to deal with the situation, Lee spent most of the next several years at Arlington. Nursing the estate back to health became Robert's second career. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, 
shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. By contrasting both the experiences of contemporaries and the conclusions of historians, Grey History dives into the detail and unpacks one of the most important and disputed events in human history. From a revolution based on hope and liberty to its descent into the infamous Reign of Terror, there's plenty to discuss and plenty of grey to explore. One can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So if you're looking for your next long-form, binge-worthy history podcast, one recommended by universities and loved by enthusiasts, then check out Grey History, The French Revolution today. Or simply search for The French Revolution. At this point, with Lee more involved in the day-to-day operations at Arlington, this might be a good time to take a couple of minutes and say a few words about Robert E. Lee's attitude toward the peculiar institution, as slavery was known in the South. All right. Well, this is a difficult topic, uh, since Lee's image in regard to slavery has largely been shaped by, not surprisingly, the lost causes distortions and uh, those efforts to try and rationalize secession and the war itself. But fortunately, for anyone wishing to peel away the layers of myth to get to Lee's actual view of slavery, the man himself left hundreds of letters in which his attitudes towards slavery and race uh, are plainly expressed. There are also large numbers of Lee family family documents, uh, as well as legal documents and courthouse archives, which give a clear picture of Lee's actions concerning the slaves at Arlington. Please understand that this is a painful topic for us to address. My own family owned slaves before the Civil War, which we aren't proud of, but which is a part of my family's past that we know we need to acknowledge. But anyway, we think this is an important topic for us to examine since Robert E. Lee's association with slavery is an area in which the greatest fallacies and distortions have endured down through the years. We feel the need to bring this up because the lost cause has presented Robert E. Lee to us as more than a remarkable military leader. The lost cause has portrayed Lee as a man of great personal virtue, someone whose character ought to be emulated. And when a historical interpretation sets up this standard, it necessarily invites inspection of that standard, which in this case means using the well-documented historical evidence to honestly examine Robert E. Lee's racial attitudes. So we actually aren't going to take the time here to scrutinize that evidence, but we will share conclusions. But if you're interested in a more detailed examination of Lee's racial attitudes, There's an excellent article about that very topic in the February 2009 issue of Civil War Times magazine. In fact, that article is titled Robert E. Lee and Slavery, and it was written by Elizabeth Brown Pryor. So you can check into that if you so desire. 
And just to stress again that many of Robert E. Lee's most ardent fans have not only trumpeted Lee's supposed concern for his slaves, but have also made the man into something that sounds almost like an abolitionist. The evidence of Lee's own words and actions, however, show that he was, in every respect, the personification of the ideal Virginia planter. He was courteous, gallant, religious, and unwaveringly committed to the belief that slavery was the best of all possible worlds for black people. One of the things that um, the prior article brings up is the consistency throughout Lee's writings of his disdain for black people. She points out that other well-known slave-owning Southerners, such as Washington, Jefferson, and Henry Clay, struggled with the ethical consequences of their racial attitudes. But by contrast, Robert E. Lee never gave evidence of wrestling with the morality of slavery or of suffering any spiritual discomfort over the inequitable society in which he lived. In 1856, Lee summed up his beliefs in a letter to Mary. He wrote, In this enlightened age, there are few, I believe, but will acknowledge that slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil in any country. It is useless to expiate on its disadvantages. I think it, however, a greater evil to the white than to the black race. And while my feelings are strongly interested in the latter, my sympathies are for the former. The blacks are immeasurably better off here than in Africa, morally, socially, and physically. The painful discipline they are undergoing is necessary for their instruction as a race, and, I hope, will prepare and lead them to better things. How long their subjugation may be necessary is known and ordered by a wise and merciful providence. About that telling letter that Lee wrote to his wife, Elizabeth Brown Pryor points out, quote, On first reading, this letter seems confusing and contradictory. Lee acknowledges that slavery is an evil, but then says the evil is greater for whites than for blacks, without giving an explanation of how this could possibly be. He says he assumes that the institution will fade away, but offers no prescription for hastening that day. Instead, he takes a complicated middle ground in which he regrets the existence of slavery, but claims it is necessary, and then sidesteps any responsibility for the slave's condition by saying that that is up to God, not man. In fact, what seems like a convoluted assessment is actually an unusually clear statement of the pro-slavery views of Lee's era. Apologists admitted that slavery was regrettable, but concocted elaborate justifications for its continuation. The belief that slaves were better off than blacks living in Africa, that their character needed somehow to be elevated by whites, that it was necessary to prolong slavery into an unpredictable future, even a divine sanction for it all, were themes of sermons, pamphlets, and newspaper articles. Amazingly, this letter has sometimes been used to point to Lee as an abolitionist. This view is particularly hard to understand because in the same letter, Lee slams those who oppose slavery. The abolitionists, he wrote, have neither the right nor the power to interfere in what he has no concern. Still, I fear he will persevere in his evil course. End quote. Robert E. Lee not only approved of the painful discipline he wrote about in that letter, 
but he also ordered physical violence in the form of brutal whippings to be carried out on his own slaves. And while the Washingtons and Custises had taken a personal interest in Arlington's slave families, never breaking them up, Lee's style as a master was very different. He had no compunction about breaking apart slave families, running out many of Arlington's able-bodied males, and sending them out of state to the south to work for other slave owners. And it should be noted that these measures, breaking apart slave families and sending one slave south, were considered harsh even among Lee's peers in Virginia. In fact, Lee was considered a hard master, and as a result, he had a chronic problem not only with runaways, but with disgruntled slaves who frequently refused to recognize his authority and ignored his orders. Much of this unrest was due to George Washington Park Custis's complicated will. Custis had freed all his slaves, but with the vague provision that it should be done sometime within five years. When Lee deliberately delayed this emancipation, the slaves, not surprisingly, resented it. For financial reasons, having to do with extravagant legacies Custis had bequeathed in his will, Lee eventually sued to keep the slaves in bondage, and the lawsuit dragged on until 1862. While the court deliberated, Lee told one of his sons he might ignore the five-year deadline for freeing the slaves and, quote, just leave them be, end quote. But ultimately, the appeals court ruled against Lee, directing him to liberate the slaves by January 1st, 1863. Only then did he free the bondsmen as his father-in-law had desired. Near the end of her article on Robert E. Lee and slavery, Elizabeth Brown Pryor writes, quote, We do have to recognize the intellectual and cultural norms of Lee's time. We have to understand Lee within the context of his standards, not our own. That being said, we cannot use this as a reason to absolve Lee from responsibility for his own attitudes. While we might be able to say, well, he wasn't any worse than anybody else, by the same token, we also have to say that he wasn't any better than anyone else. And there's the rub, because generations have led, been led to believe that Robert E. Lee was better than everybody else, even on this difficult issue of slavery. Yet all of the evidence shows he lacked the vision or the humanity to transcend the petty opinions of his day. End quote. During the time Robert E. Lee spent away from the army in Virginia, unraveling his father-in-law's will and setting Arlington back on its feet, events were occurring on the national stage that would have a profound impact on Lee's life and on the life of America. As early as October 1859, the storm clouds hovering over America began to gather together into a whirlwind. That was when abolitionist John Brown and his followers attempted to seize the federal arsenal at Harpers Ferry, Virginia, as part of a harebrained plan to invade the South and instigate a slave uprising. Knowing that Lee was on leave at Arlington, just across the Potomac River from the nation's capital, the War Department summoned him to lead a handful of Marines to Harpers Ferry and put down this mad act of insurrection. 
Lee's second in command would be another cavalry officer who also happened to be in Washington at the time, Lieutenant Jeb Stewart. By the time Lee, Stewart, and the Marines arrived on the scene, Brown and his men at the arsenal were already surrounded and pinned down by local militia. John Brown himself was barricaded, along with several of his men and some hostages, in a stout little brick building that housed the arsenal's fire engines. Lee sent Stewart up to the building with a message for Brown and his men to surrender. John Brown made an attempt to negotiate, but Stewart said that Lee had not sent him to discuss the situation, but to demand Brown's immediate surrender. When the old man refused these terms, Stewart stepped away from the door where he had been conversing with Brown, and then raised his hat in the prearranged signal for the Marines to straightaway storm the engine house. Lee had thought that such a daring, unexpected assault by the Marines would catch Brown and his men by surprise, and he was right. After a brief, violent skirmish inside the close confines of the engine house, Brown and his men were either dead or in custody. While we can recognize this strange episode at Harper's Ferry as an essential stepping stone on the road to war, and even at the time most Southerners were outraged at the incident, but it's kind of odd that Robert E. Lee just sort of dismissed the whole thing and refused to take it very seriously. He regarded Brown as a lunatic and dismissed his followers as rioters. Lee ensured that Brown and the other prisoners were well treated during the short time they were in his custody, but then he handed them over to Virginia authorities and returned home to Arlington, washing his hands of the entire unsavory business. The bitter and violent forces that had already been clashing in bloody Kansas and that crashed upon the east with John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry soon plunged the nation into civil war. When the crisis culminated during the momentous secession winter of 1860-1861, Lee was actually back in Texas with his cavalry regiment. Shortly after Abraham Lincoln's election in November 1860, Lee wrote to one of his sons, saying, The southern states seem to be in a convulsion. And in January 1861, he denounced the secession fever that was sweeping through the deep south. Secession is nothing but revolution, Lee wrote. The framers of our Constitution never exhausted so much labor, wisdom, and forbearance in its formation and surrounded it with so many guards and securities if it was intended to be broken by every member of the Confederacy at will. Still, he concluded sadly, a union that can only be maintained by swords and bayonets and in which strife and civil war are to take the place of brotherly love and kindness has no charm for me. Recalled to Washington from Texas in February 1861, just as the senior army officer in the region, David Twiggs, shamefully surrendered the military department of Texas to the secessionist, Lee, upon his arrival in the nation's capital, found out that he was to be given command of the 1st Cavalry Regiment in mid-March. Lee never got to return to the field and enjoy his new command, since he was still at Arlington when, on April 12th, Confederate artillery batteries in Charleston Harbor opened fire on Fort Sumter. And on the podcast, we've already talked about how Abraham Lincoln's April 15th call for 75,000 volunteers to suppress the rebellion triggered Virginia's secession, but at the same time as Virginia's secession convention was voting to take the state out of the Union, 
Francis Blair Sr. invited Lee to his home in Washington. Blair was a well-known Republican political operative and father of Montgomery Blair, Lincoln's postmaster general. Blair Sr. had apparently been designated by Lincoln to approach Lee and offer him command of the main federal army that was just beginning to gather in the capital. Lee listened to Blair's pitch and then replied courteously but candidly that although he opposed secession, he could not draw his sword against his native state. Immediately after leaving Blair's residence, Lee went to call upon his old mentor, Winfield Scott. To the general-in-chief, a fellow Virginian, Lee recounted his conversation with Blair and then reiterated that he would not accept the proffered command. Scott, who had almost certainly talked to Lee previously about secession and the prospects for war, supposedly replied sadly, Lee, you have made the greatest mistake of your life, but I feared it would be so. The next day, April 19th, the news of Virginia's secession appeared in local papers in Alexandria, near Lee's home in Arlington, and that's when he learned that his native state was leaving the Union. In the early morning hours of April 20th, Lee composed a one-sentence letter of resignation to Secretary of War Simon Cameron. It said simply, I have the honor to tender the resignation of my commission as Colonel of the 1st Regiment of Cavalry. After making that wrenching decision, Lee went downstairs and told his waiting wife, Well, Mary, the question is settled. Here is my letter of resignation and a letter I have written to General Scott. Lee's letter to Scott announced his decision and told the old general that, quote, I shall carry to the grave the most grateful recollections of your kind consideration, and your name and fame will always be dear to me, end quote. Lee also added one of the most frequently quoted sentences he ever penned or spoke, Save in the defense of my native state, I never desire again to draw my sword. The War Depor Department took five days to process Lee's resignation, which became official on April 25th. By that time, Robert E. Lee had accepted command of Virginia's Army and Naval Forces. On April 22nd, Governor John Letcher had offered Lee that position, along with the rank of Major General, and Lee accepted. The next day, he was formally invested with command of his native state's military forces. And so, despite his clear affection for the United States and disapproval of secession, within the span of just a few days, Lee had gone from being a lifetime soldier in the U.S. Army, sworn to defend his country, to commanding officer of a rebellious state's military forces making war on the United States. Then and since, people have analyzed Lee's decision, but to a large extent, we believe his motives were exactly what he said they were. At the core of his being, Robert E. Lee was more Southern than he was American, at least in the way the majority of Americans defined Southern in 1861. Lee detested secession, but once his native state left the Union, the question became moot. Lee was prepared to sacrifice anything to save the Union, everything except honor, and his honor would not allow him to desert his family in Virginia. Long afterward, he would affirm the correctness of his decision, quote, I did only what my duty demanded. I could have taken no other course without dishonor, and if it were all to be done over again, I should act in precisely the same manner, end quote.
As we wrap things up, we just wanted to point out that Robert E. Lee was not the only one called upon to make a difficult choice in those tumultuous days in 1861. Old Winfield Scott, who as we mentioned was also a Virginian, was actually also offered command of Virginia's military forces, but the feisty old general replied, I have served my country under the flag of the Union for more than fifty years, and so long as God permits me to live, I will defend that flag with my sword, even if my native state assails it. Another army officer from Virginia, George Thomas, also chose to remain with the Union. He would become famous as the Rock of Chickamauga and go on to destroy the Confederate Army of Tennessee at Nashville. In 1861, his decision to side with the Union so distressed his family that they turned his portrait to face the wall. George Thomas's sisters never forgave him and forever after refused to acknowledge his existence. Tennessean David Farragut, a naval officer, also remained loyal to the Union. He would capture New Orleans and dam the torpedoes at Mobile Bay. In 1861, when his Norfolk, Virginia neighbors tried to persuade him to side with the Confederacy, he said, Mind what I tell you, you fellows will catch the devil before you get through with this business. And then North Carolinian John Gibbon became one of the best division commanders in the Army of the Potomac, while three of his brothers fought for the South. At the same time, a few northern-born Army officers chose to go with the South, in most instances due to ties of marriage. New Jersey's Samuel Cooper, who married a Virginian, became adjutant general in the Confederate Army. Pennsylvanian John Pemberton, who also married a Virginia woman, sided with the South and rose to command of the Confederate force that surrendered to Grant at Vicksburg. And then there was the family of Kentucky statesman John J. Crittenden. During the last days of peace in early 1861, Senator Crittenden had vainly sought to broker another great compromise between North and South, but by then it was too late to avoid the onrushing conflict. Crittenden's family was then torn apart, just like the nation, by divided loyalties, as one of his sons, George, became a general in the Confederate Army, while another son, Thomas, became a general in the Union Army. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation for this episode is Reading the Man, a portrait of Robert E. Lee through his private letters by Elizabeth Brown Pryor. Now, depending on your mindset, you'll probably either love this book or hate it. But as Pryor uses a compilation of Lee's own correspondence, it's hard to argue with her source material. And since she basically allows Lee to speak for himself, uh, we think her analysis, in the end, is fair and balanced. Uh, what emerges is a man who was human after all, and not a one-dimensional historical icon. But we suggest you get the book for yourself and see what you think. So that's Reading the Man, a portrait of Robert E. Lee through his private letters, by Elizabeth Brown Pryor. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. We want to thank Todd S. and David D. for their donations this past week. Thanks, guys. Also, thank you to Rainmaker60 for that great five-star review on iTunes. 
He or she discovered the podcast this past week and listened to the first 25 episodes straight through during just one late night of work. Yeah, and uh, that's kind of cool. Uh, anyway, thanks to everyone who's still leaving us those great reviews and five-star ratings on iTunes. And thank you to all you guys for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time when we talk about strategy, the Confederate strategy at the start of the war, and also Winfield Scott's Anaconda plan. So that'll be next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.